The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Well, new inflation data dropped this morning that will give some serious heartburn to the White House and Democrats trying to get Build Back Better over the finish line. Let's get into that and more with White House correspondent for The Washington Post, Annie Linsky. Annie, welcome back to First Look. You're joining us by phone. The, the number that hit... 6.8% rise in inflation in November over the previous year, the highest since 1982. How is the White House reacting or going to react to this new data? Yeah, this is not the data that the White House was hoping for. I mean, I think if you're a consumer in this country, you have you know this to be true as it is. You've been, um, you know, you've been feeling it in your price as it is, um, but this is certainly bad news for the White House. And I think, you know, this is something that Jen Psaki will be explaining um, this afternoon when she briefs. Um, and it's, it, you know, the, I think the long-term strategy, you know, if you talk to White House, senior White House aides, they say that um, they kind of have acknowledged that inflation is not gonna be transitory, which was kind of the first thing that they were, had been saying. Um, and, but, but what they're, they're sort of, what they've shifted to is, look, this is something that will be like a one to two year problem. And, um, you know, with the implication being that inflation will be under control when Biden is up for election in 2024. I mean, Biden has made a lot of moves to try to address inflation. And I think with this number, you know, you just really wonder whether they're going to have to get even more aggressive than they have. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my um, editorial page colleague, Heather Long, tweeted out, uh, a list of the of, of the um, things that have had the biggest annual increases. Top of the list is gas, a 58% increase mm-hmm. November over November, although we're starting to see gas prices uh, drop. Pork is up 17%. Bacon is up 21%. New cars, 11%. Chicken, 9%. Um, and then at the bottom of her list, which I found surprising, was rent at 3.5%. And... Um, it is being reported that supply chain woes, demand, and housing costs are what, what was driving that new inflation data. Again, 6.8% rise yeah. in inflation last November over the previous November, the highest since 1982. But that's not the only thing that's been happening, Annie, that's on, on your beat that I want to talk to you about. Um, we are on day two of the virtual uh, summit on democracy. Uh, the president sounded the alarm on the need for countries to, quote, lock arms to strengthen democracy around the world. What kind of action is the White House looking for? Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, this was a um, campaign promise that the president made to have this, you know, democracy democracy summit. Um, You know, unfortunately for the White House, it's had to be um, virtual because, um, uh, you know, because of the COVID threat. Um, you know, going into the summit, there had been some grumbling. I'm sure you heard some of this among 
um, you, you know, in the diplomatic community in DC that, you know, there wasn't really like strong deliverables coming out of the summit and that, you know, a summit should have deliver deliverables. You know, today, of course, you know, the White House is extending um, some uh, sanctions uh, that are, you know, based on, um, you know, human rights, um, you know, sanctions that will apply to those individuals who are known to violate human rights. And so that is a little bit, you know, nudging closer to a deliverable. But essentially what the White House is saying is that countries, that this is the starting point of an effort that will be longer to bolster democracy and that countries will essentially make pledges and then come back and meet uh, again. <laughs> so the big deliverable is a, another meeting um, a year from now. Um, and the White House has come under, you know, quite a lot of criticism um, in the run up to this summit about, you know, sort of who was invited and who was not, mm-hmm. um, you, you know, and, and that has been sort of a bit of a, you know, it, it has shown how difficult it is for this administration to sort of define, quote unquote, democracies. Um, you, you know, you've had some uh, countries invited that clearly, you know, do not fit the traditional definition of a democracy, um, whereas others that are allies and maybe are questionable um, were left out. Um, you know, Hungary is the one that has really taken been one of the most talked about here in D.C. It's certainly tilting towards an authoritarian um, direction, um, but they are also an ally of the United States. Um, you know, uh, Turkey is also in that category. So there's been a lot of debate about what, you know, why some countries were included and others were not. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I do think we'll look to, you know, whether this continues, what, you know, whether if more countries are invited and who drops on and off the list, if this, is, if this becomes a tradition in the Biden administration. Mm-hmm. Right. And Annie, the, the White House, in, in terms of controversy about this summit, there's been um, a backlash that the White House received um, over who was invited, as you were saying. But, you know, China and Russia were not among yeah. those countries. And their ambassadors to the United States wrote in an essay that President Biden has a, quote, Cold War mentality. Uh, and they warn um, that they warn will force a rift between the nations. How seriously is the White House taking that kind of criticism? from China and Russia? You know, I think of all the criticism that they're receiving, um, that's perhaps the most you know, predictable you know, response by those two countries and really the easiest for the administration to counter, which is that you know, these are two countries that take a very similar approach. Um, it, it's not really um, you know, only the United States that is sort of blocking off the world in, you know, sort of um, alliances and spheres of influence. So I think that what's a little bit more difficult is when the administration is getting um, pushback from allies that had hoped to be, you know, traditional allies who had hoped to make the list, but also mm-hmm. domestically. I mean, there's a lot of domestic pushback where, um, you know, groups, particularly racial justice groups, are saying, hey, you know, what are you doing? What is the Biden administration doing here at home to shore up democracy before? going out onto the national stage to hold oneself up. You know, we're coming up on the year anniversary of January 6th, and they're saying, look, has enough, this is a good time rather to sort of project outward, to reflect inward and and think about whether or not Biden should be doing more at home. Mm -hmm. You know, Annie, another participant in the, the Democracy Summit was the president of Ukraine who had a separate conversation 
with President Biden yesterday afternoon. And this came after Tuesday's tense two-hour virtual meeting on uh, between President Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin, where President Biden warned him of, quote, severe consequences if his actions at the Ukraine border continue. Was President Biden successful in, in assuaging Putin's activity at the border? And what are those severe consequences he's talking about? Oh, um, well, I, I don't know that we've heard anything about um, the Russian troops retreating from the um, the border there. So it is a bit early to know whether there's been this has been a successful moment uh, for Biden. I mean, we're looking at, you know, between 100 and 175,000 troops at the Russian troops um, at the border. Um, and and the and Ukrainians are quite concerned about an invasion and and how that would look. Um, meanwhile, the rest of the world um, is, you know, Biden is trying to say that he's leading the rest of the world, the rest of the sort of European, European nations in, um, you know, trying to say that they will do something that is short of a military defense of Ukraine. And, you know, it, the, the response to Biden's attempt to sort of um, threaten sanctions and diplomatic, uh, a tough diplomatic response has not been positive. I mean, you saw, um, you know, just in this morning's Financial Times, um, the, an Estonian um, leader comparing this moment to Munich, um, mm. you know, sort of suggesting that Biden is trying to assuage um, the, 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 the Russians similarly to how, you know, allies had, had attempted at Munich to sort of um, appease the, the Nazis as they were on the rise. So the, the, you know, those who are closest to this are watching very fearfully. One of the things that Jake Sullivan has suggested is that um, the Russian Nord Stream 2 pipeline is something that he would like to be using as a threat to say that this pipeline that has just been completed but hasn't really opened yet um, that brings oil from uh, Russia to, to Germany um, you know that you know the United States would like to be able to say that this pipeline would somehow not start operating if there was mm -hmm. an invasion. That that has not been completely settled. Though. I mean, right. I think that is not necessarily in the United States' hands. And the, the you know the the German government, which is in the midst of a um, a, a transition of power, you know, has been you know open to that before. But I think that right. what what there hasn't been a very strong definitive statement about that yet. All right. Annie Linsky, Washington Post White House correspondent. Thank you once again for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thank you. Bye. We're going to keep the conversation going with, the, uh, with our Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find my Post columnist colleagues. Eugene Robinson and Hugh Hewitt. Eugene, Hugh, welcome back to First Look. We've got to start mm -hmm. the conversation uh, about this new inflation data, 6.8% in November, the highest it's been since 1982. This is November 2020 to November 2021. That is the increase in prices. Hugh, I'll start with you. Your reaction to the inflation data. It should be the death knell for Build Back Better. Uh, seniors are going to get a COLA increase in their Social Security of 5.9% next month. That's already been wiped out by these numbers. And if Build Back Better passes, 
uh, inflation will rise out of control and the Democrats have to listen to Joe Manchin. They're going to get wiped out anyway next year. But to add inflationary fuel to the fire right now, just crazy. Put Build Back Better on the shelf. Come back later if you keep your majority and if the inflation fires lay down. Um, you know, Eugene, usually um, I try to push back on Hugh when he says stuff like that. However, the inflation data uh, makes it a little difficult for me to push back. I mean, doesn't Hugh have a point? Well, it's a big Don't be still my heart. <laughs> it's, a, it's transitory, it's a, it's a, Hugh. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. It's a, look, it's a big number. Uh, and I think politically, this is clearly bad for Build Back Better. Economically, I, I'm not sure. I mean, it, 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 is, uh, it is judged by many economists not to be uh, inflationary, at least in the long run. Um, uh, and, you know, even somebody like Larry Summers, who is pretty much an inflation hawk, uh, says, no, go ahead with Build Back Better. That's, gonna, that's going to make things better. That's going to lower prices, drug prescription, drug prices, and other things uh, that people have to pay. Uh, but it would be silly not to acknowledge that this gives uh, sort of political ammunition uh, to Joe Manchin. That's all it, the, the only person has to give political uh, ammunition to, really, um, mm -hmm. uh, because he's the decisive vote, as is any of the 50 Democratic senators. And, and, and if Manchin uh, decides this number, um, um, says we should wait, then, um, then there's nothing anybody can do about that. Would that be a mistake? And I'm asking this question. I mean, that maybe would, if Democrats sideline Build Back Better over these numbers released today, would they be mm -hmm. making a mistake, a knee-jerk reaction? And I ask that question because, as I mentioned in the conversation with Annie Linsky, our colleague Heather Long um, put out a list of things that had the biggest increases um, in in um, in prices. And number one at a 58% increase was gas. And one of the big yeah. stories this week has been that mm -hmm. gas prices have been falling all over the country. So mm -hmm. are we in danger of overreacting to this very big number? Well, um, I, look, I've always thought that gas prices are the, the number one <laughs> indicator of inflation that people react to. I wrote a column about it and, and, and urged the Biden administration to release um, oil from the petroleum reserve and to do anything it could to get gas prices down just because they're so visible and, and they're deeply felt by people who have to commute a long distance to work and, and this and that. And as you said, they are starting to come down. So that does mitigate um, the, the the situation somewhat. Um, and and so we'll see. I think in the real world, that's a mitigating factor. In the political world, uh, I'm not I'm not quite as sure. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Hugh, Jonathan, yep. I, I, I try and understand the Democrats' position. They're going to lose their once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Joe Biden to do something. What Eugene said about drug prices resonates. It's not holy writ. They can go back and change Build Back Better. They can keep the stuff about drug prices. They could increase the COLA. They could take care of the seniors. What they can't do is spend $170, million, as I wrote, $170 billion, as I wrote for the Post this week, on homeless programs that won't work, or $200 million on Nancy Pelosi's Presidio Park, or $3 billion for tree equity. If they're going to spend money, go help the seniors who are on fixed income and just got slammed. 
I just want to push it's back not, on the it's contention. Not, it's not Nancy Pelosi's Presidio Park. It's a national park. It happens to be in San Francisco. And I guess, it happens to be a 10 uh, blocks from her house, Eugene. According to, according to the conservative doctrine, no federal dollars should ever go to San Francisco. Yet, um, yet many, well, many, many federal tax dollars come it's from not San a bad Francisco. Choice. So $200 yeah, million dollars for the Presidio. Go ahead, Jonathan. I mean, I mean, I mean okay, I got the, the national parks. Come on, you. Come on. Right. No, no, no. It's right. $200 million for it, one park. Let's amp- <laughs> uh, and I want to amplify something Gene said that might not have been heard over the, the crosstalk, and that is, you know, San Francisco and California, as well as New York, they send a whole lot more money to Washington than they get back. So if a national park that happens to be in San Francisco gets some money to, to help it function, fine. And also, Hugh, on your point that, you know, you said Joe Biden, his one, last, his one chance to do something, let's not forget about the American Rescue Plan. But let's move on from, from Build Back Better and domestic economic policy and talk about foreign policy and Russia. Mm. That two-hour meeting, virtual meeting between President Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin, big topic of conversation is that buildup on the the um, the Ukraine border of Russian troops. Hugh, if Russia were to invade, this would be one of the biggest military moves in the region since World War II, and would be without question the biggest foreign policy crisis of the Biden administration. What does the president need to do to prevent that? A lot more than he did. Right now we are engaged in appeasement. I needed to remind everyone, in 1994, Ukraine was the third largest nuclear power in the world. The United States and the United Nations guaranteed its integrity in the uh, agreement which removed those nuclear weapons negotiated by Bill Clinton and others. And it was a great moment for denuclearization. But we guaranteed their integrity. So when President Biden came out yesterday and said, you know, they're not Article 5. We don't really, we're not obliged to do anything here. I thought, wait a minute. You were around in 1994. Did you forget what we did? We guaranteed their integrity. So rather than threaten sanctions, we had to blink out a lot of the billions that Putin has stashed around the world. Just take it away, shot across their bow, and dismantle Nord Stream or tell the Germans they're out uh, because we've got to stop this. Gene? Um, I don't disagree with you <laughs> on that. I mean, uh, but, but the key, the key is that the, the, I, I do think he should take those steps. I think, sure, you know, um, uh, Vladimir Putin wakes up uh, tomorrow morning to check his um, billions and billions of dollars in his in his foreign accounts, and it's gone. <laughs> you know, I think that would send a message. Um, I, I, and I, I, I think um, I agree on the pipeline. It's certainly not a time to go ahead with the, with the pipeline. Um, that said, these are all steps that are short of a, of a military response um, to, to an invasion. And I think that's, um, the, the question is, are there steps short of the military response that are gonna have the desired effect and, uh, and make Putin um, uh, hold off? And I think, um, I think it is correct that we should take those steps short of a military response uh, and, and, and see if, if, if they work. Um, I am not sure that he's been dissuaded so far. Am I correct in hearing, sotto voce, clearly, that both of you are concerned that the Biden administration, that President Biden might lack 
the will to um, take those actions that you each outlined? Um, you, you go I, first. Okay, go ahead, Gene. Go ahead, Gene. I, I do, but, but I, I, it won't surprise anyone that, that I do. I also agree with, with Gene, though. I want to note this. And he's been very gracious. He hadn't brought up the fact that Michigan beat Ohio State. So I think he's... I have to oh, I was going to... I, I knew you were going to get there, Don't but worry. it's a preemptive strike. <laughs> a, I'm disintermediating you from your, your preemptive strike. But we do have to use force if China attacks Taiwan. It is not in America's national interest sufficiently enough to commit American troops to the defense of Ukraine. And no American is going to support the loss of American life there. I think I agree with everyone on that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Gene, uh, to the question of, of, politi of political will, does the White House, House have the political will to follow through on these severe consequences or the things you, you uh, and Hugh were outlining that they should do? Well, the White House tells me that it does. I mean, it, it does have the will to, to, to go far beyond anything that's been done to try to dissuade Putin before and that they've communicated um, uh, that, that there will be measures that Putin and his, uh, his coterie will feel um, and will not like uh, if he goes ahead. So we'll see, we'll see. I have no reason to doubt that the, that the White House has the will uh, to do, again, everything short of the military response that you and I agree uh, is, is, is not coming. Uh, mm -hmm. We're not going to commit American lives uh, to defend Ukraine, um, uh, and and I also agree that that China and Taiwan is a different story, and um, mm -hmm. and and so um, <laughs> let's hope we don't have to cross that bridge soon, um, but we might. We've got a lot of topics and not a lot of time, and I'm going to try to try to squeeze in this one before we have to we have a must do topic at the end. Mark Meadows, the January 6th Select Committee. Eugene, you, you wrote a column yesterday calling out the House Select Committee, saying they needed to be much louder in what they're doing. You wrote this before all this action happened yesterday. One, I would love your reaction to whether the action we saw yesterday rises to the level that you're talking about. But more broadly, what exactly would that look like, having the, the House Select Committee be much louder? Well, it would look like uh, televised hearings. Um, it would it would look, frankly, like, and this is this is going to tarnish the the effort by association. It would look like Benghazi. It would look like what the Republicans do with yeah. they had a hearing every week. They had a you know a different committee having a different hearing, calling people in to answer the same questions uh, of, about an incident in in which uh, uh, no wrongdoing by American officials and certainly not by Hillary Clinton was ever uh, even postulated uh, seriously. Um, yeah, it was Benghazi, Benghazi, Benghazi. I, you know, I think what happened on January 6th was, was tremendously important um, uh, in a bad way um, in, the, in the life of this nation. And I think um, this committee should be, um, should be, you know, putting it, putting it in our faces. Uh, more mm -hmm. than it is. Hugh, I'm going to ask you this question and ask you to be brief because I do want us to talk about our um, our beloved colleague who we lost, Fred Hyatt, before we end this show. But um, um, Hugh, Mark Meadows cooperating, the not cooperating, and now suing Speaker Pelosi in the committee. Uh, play, play 
to the end of the tape for us. What comes next for, for Meadows and, and other Trump officials who are defying subpoenas? I think they're going to stretch this out as long as possible because nobody cares. And but I said by nobody, I mean the Beltway cares a lot. But all the king's horses and all the king's men cannot put together a committee again. And what Nancy Pelosi did when she stacked the committee with my friend Liz Cheney, when she denied Jim Banks, his senior ranking member, is she destroyed the antagonist protagonist uh, dynamic you need to interest the American people. And she killed the committee. And uh, mm -hmm. it's on Nancy Pelosi said that nobody cares. OK, we've got less than four minutes left. But before we run out of time, uh, our very own Fred Hyatt who is the Post's editorial page editor for 21 years, passed away on Tuesday. Um, he was 66 years old. The reason why you're seeing the three of us in these boxes on this show called First Look is because it was Fred Hyatt's idea. Um, he was known as one of the most influential opinion makers in the country. And so um, Gene and Hugh, uh, briefly tell us, um, from your perspective, the legacy that Fred leaves behind. Hugh, you go first. I'm going to yield all my time to you men who knew him very well as a good friend. He was my colleague for four years. He was my boss. He is the best editor I ever worked for. And I, I feel his loss, but you men were his close friends. Gene? Um, I knew Fred Hyatt for 40 years. Um, we, we, we started, um, uh, I started actually one year before he did uh, at uh, the Washington Post. He came from the Washington Star and when it folded, the Post snatched him up. Um, one of the smarter decisions the Post ever made. He was, um, uh, he was, a, he was a great um, a reporter covered Richmond for a while. He was a great foreign correspondent in Moscow. Um, uh, he went to editorial. It, was, it became clear that he would be the the, the real long-term successor to the legendary Meg Greenfield. Uh, and he came in and he was, um, it, it, when he took over editorial, it was, it was uh, 12 people in a cloister. In a, in a literal cloister separated from the rest mm -hmm. of the newsroom. Um, uh, and he built it into, you know, 80, 90 full time staffers, a multimedia, multi platform, uh, um, a 24 hour operation. Um, and he, he maintained opinion pages that welcome the widest range of views of any major media outlet. And that's why I can sit here with Hugh Hewitt and we can have, we can disagree on, on everything, especially on Ohio State and Michigan. Um, uh, and we can have this, this, um, the civilized um, conversation uh, and that 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 hopefully sheds more more light than he um, uh, Fred deeply believed in that. And he also had these North Star principles of freedom, mm -hmm. democracy, human rights uh, that guided him in every decision he made. Uh, he was a great mentor. He was a great talent spotter. He brought young people uh, into uh, in the section who, frankly, are, are are devastated by his loss because he was he was so important to to, to many many of them. He was almost like a father figure. He was mm -hmm. he was a a genuinely great man, and um, and it, and it was a great friend of mine. And I will I will really miss him. Um, um, it sort of took me by surprise, I should have known this, um, after his passing that he had been editorial page editor for 21 years, and for me to realize that I'd been on the editorial page for 14 of those 21 years. Fred Hyatt mm -hmm. gave me a call out of the blue on January 4th, 2007, 
that basically ended up with me moving from New York to Washington to join the editorial board, be a part of that cloister you were talking about, um, Eugene. I remember those offices very well. And being on the editorial board of the Washington Post is like going to um, uh, master's and PhD classes every day. Um, he was the smartest man uh, and most brilliant and caring man I've ever met. And I am deeply grateful to him for what he has done for all of us, but in particular, what he has done for me. Eugene Robinson, Hugh Hewitt, we got to go. Thank you both very, very much for coming back to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thank you, John. You Thank you, Eugene. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.